the Night Owl Podcast, Campfire Episode 5, The Moorhead Stagecoach Inn. Welcome to the Night Owl Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Ballou, and this is a place for all you restless spirits out there to tune in and hear true tales of the paranormal. I hunt these stories down, capture them from the mouths of those who experience them, and share them with you, right here. If you have a story to tell, we're currently looking for more personal ghost stories, so if you or someone you know has one, please submit it to us for consideration. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com, click on the Submit Your Story page, and let us hear your ghost story. We'd love to consider it for the show. Tonight, we have our fifth Campfire episode of the Night Owl Podcast. Just a reminder, this show has two types of episodes, investigative and campfire episodes. Investigative episodes are where I travel to haunted places, bring my clairvoyant friend Sarah to historical research, and offer up theories and sometimes validation for the experiences people are having in their place of business or home. Campfire episodes are more like personal ghost stories you'd share around a campfire, hence the name. I've been gathering personal ghost stories from listeners around the world, selecting my favorites, and curating them to share with you here on the second Monday of every month. In this campfire, we have something very special for you listeners. Unlike our other tales, which were told by many who were unsuspecting victims of the supernatural, tonight we'll hear an eerie account of a veteran paranormal investigator who actually went prodding around for proof of the paranormal and was a bit unnerved when something prodded back. After spending 20 years as a paranormal investigator, Alan Cornelson moved to Ida Grove, Iowa to help his wife from a second marriage care for her ailing mother. He had absolutely no intentions of putting his investigator hat back on, until one evening, taking a tour of a local park, Alan discovered something. An old house barely visible through the timber, tucked away on the property. Something about it was alluring to him, and Alan was compelled to inquire about the old structure from the townspeople. He soon learned that this house was actually an old stagecoach inn dating back to 1856, and now had been converted into a museum in the park. From this point on, Alan would unknowingly begin an intense six-year investigation of this historic site, have some of the most frightening experiences of his entire career as an investigator, and capture evidence that, in his mind, and many of the townspeople's, proved the existence of the paranormal. Join Alan as he takes us through his unsettling journey investigating the Moorhead Stagecoach Inn from 2011 to 2017. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop. When you need custom t-shirts, this shop's got your back. At Oh Boy, they've made customer satisfaction and quality their top priorities. Their aim is to supply you with quality products that meet your every need. Specializing in custom screen printing for organizations, clothing companies, schools, businesses, and even events. Big or small, Oh Boy is here to help. Crisp, clean t-shirt printing without setup fees or hidden costs and always delivered on time. Oboyprintshop.com. That's O H B O Y printshop.com. And now, mention the Night Owl podcast and get $50 off your first order. I'd also like to announce that we have a new special offering for listeners of the show at one of our local favorite haunts, the Clay Pit. We investigated and featured this contemporary Indian restaurant in season one, and they've now partnered with us to offer a special Night Owl hidden spirits menu at their bar. On it, you'll find unique cocktails specifically designed with the show and the spirits we discovered at the Clay Pit in mind. Every drink you order off the Hidden Spirits menu at the Clay Pit, a portion of that comes right back to us. So go grab one of these special secret drinks at this haunted location and raise a glass to you, 
the spirits, and the show. The term paranormal is admittedly more widely used than it ever has been in the past, making it, ironically, quite normal. But the journey to this lackadaisical use of the word did not come easy. In history, those who decided to pursue research in the field of parapsychology were met with resistance and criticism. But it was through their efforts that the road was paved for many to follow in their footsteps, seeking truth in the world of the unexplained. And although some would argue that much of this criticism still exists today, it has admittedly become much more acceptable by today's standards. It's now commonplace for individuals to pursue avenues of the paranormal, either passively through television shows, movies, blogs, or podcasts like this one, or for the more adventurous types, the more active avenues like ghost tours or even forming teams and investigating haunted locations. Where we've come to is a general global acceptance that ghosts might exist, and there are many out there interested in the subject, some who are extremely fascinated by it, and some who are even plagued by it and have to seek out answers, whether it be for themselves or for others in need. A way for many of these such individuals to satisfy their desire for the truth is by investigating. The path to becoming an investigator is quite unique to everyone, often catalyzed by a moment or incident in their past. For me, there were two such moments that I believe led me to where I am today. Both incidences have stayed with me and have driven me to continue seeking the truth in this field. But as I said, for those driven to investigate the paranormal, each path is unique. And for Alan Cornelson, his path would start with a devastating tragedy, lead him to Ida Grove, Iowa, where he'd discover the Moorhead Stagecoach Inn and would unknowingly grow consumed with investigating it over the next six years of his life. And it, too, would continue to haunt him long after he put the place behind him. Well, my name is Alan Cornelson. I've been an investigator since 1982. I got into the paranormal, well, it's been over 30 years ago. I formed my own team, Dark River Paranormal. You gotta understand, I came from a well-grounded, well-rounded childhood. You know, there were those things, ghosts. It was all very matter of fact. I am a paranormal investigator. I'm not a ghost hunter. I'm the kind of guy that I need validation. Ghost hunters are somebody, as far as I'm concerned, that this is my opinion, my opinion only, are going out to, you know, get their kicks at night and hopefully, you know, spot something, see a ghost, you know, and, and get their thrill on, so to speak. A paranormal investigator is somebody who really wants to capture the validation. Let's try to figure out, let's be scientific about this. Let's not put our imagination in front of the facts. That's what I am. I'm a paranormal investigator. My daughter and I had uh, recently lost her mother in a fire. We lost everything in this fire, including my daughter's mother. And so they set me up in a mobile home. The red, this was a Red Cross. But on one evening, put my daughter to bed. And this was shortly after the tragedy. And I could hear in her room playing. You know, at that time, everything's donated. And I'm sitting in this crappy old uh, recliner watching WWF wrestling on TV, had the old rabbit ears on a black and white TV. I'm sitting there and I'm watching the entertainment, so to speak. And I could hear her talking in her room. And I, I told her to go to bed, go to sleep. She was three years old. But, you know, being a, a single father, you know, I didn't want to be, you know, hard ass. And so I just kind of let it continue. And after about 30 minutes of listening to her, I decided it was time for me to get up and, and 
it's time to go to sleep. So I walked down this little narrow hallway and kind of peered around the, the corner of her bedroom door. And she was sitting on her bed and her little legs dangling, you know, kind of towards the floor. I completely expected her to be playing with a My Little Pony or, or one of her toys. But she was just sitting there. And I told her in a very, you know, calm and, and gentle voice, I said, honey, it's time to go to sleep. And I turned and began to walk back down the hallway. And I, I, I paused. And I came back and I, I peered back into the room and I just asked a general question. I said, who are you talking to? And she pointed at the closet. She had these little chubby fingers. And they, it wasn't like a point where there was tightly gripped fingers, you know, an, an extended index finger. It was kind of just loosely pointing towards the opening of the closet. And she turned to me and with the most matter-of-fact voice, simply said, Mommy. I remember a lump coming in my throat and I stared at the closet. I didn't see anything there. And the next moment she'd lay down in bed and went to sleep. And from that point on, I thought, what is this? I went through a, a menagerie of, of emotions. You know, it was anger. It was confusion. It was all these. It was just a gambit of emotions. I, I felt cheated. Why did she see what I've been wanting to see and say, you know, those one last words one more time, you know, I love you. But that didn't happen. So that's how this, this whole journey began for me. This was back in the 80s. This was like in 82 or 83. And I began going to the library. At that point, you know, in time, they didn't have the Internet. And I was beginning to try to figure out, you know, what this, this whole paranormal thing was. I just simply just searched magazines, books, anything I could get my hands on. And I heard about people. In fact, the main people that I heard about was the warrants and how they had been doing these what they called EVPs and, and trying to connect with the other side. And I thought, well, what the heck? I'm going I'm to give this a shot. So over time, this journey to find who I wanted to see so badly turned into something better. It turned into helping people. That selfishness of me wanting to come to a conclusion of what my daughter had seen had diminished, and I began to help other people. And when I did that, I had the mindset that I was going to only tell the truth on anything that I captured or thought I captured simply because anything less than that would be basically like a slap in my daughter's face. You know, I didn't want to do anything but show and document the truth about the paranormal because I wanted so badly to prove to her as well as myself that these phenomena exist. And that's kind of how this, this, this whole crazy journey got started. So if we fast forward, as time went on, I, I learned more and more about what I was doing and trying to accomplish, began collecting uh, more equipment. Uh, my first tape recorder was the size of a shoebox. 
Eventually, at some point, I was able to get voice-activated recorder, and then I evolved to the Sony camcorder. It wasn't night vision, and I started catching some pretty cool stuff. I recall at one time, my daughter had received a package or something in the mail. It was uh, something I ordered for or whatever, and it had these little uh, styrofoam peanuts in it, you know, like the packing peanuts. And what is so frustrating about those is is they fall out of the box. They cling to everything. They just they just automatically just kind of stick to your skin, and and you can't shake them off. And I got to thinking. I read an article somewhere about how these these spirits or, or ghosts have some kind of a electromagnetic charge to them that they were uh, energized in some manner, and I thought, well. If, if they had this electromagnetic charge, would it be somewhat like what is in my body? And that's why these, these peanuts would cling to me. So my thought was I would lay these peanuts down on a floor or wherever that maybe an apparition had been seen walking back and forth. And I did this in a house. I'd laid them out like rows of corn and had an old uh, Polaroid Instamatic camera on. And about every 30 or 40 minutes, I'd take a picture of those little peanuts laying in the hallway. And lo and behold, at one point, I took a picture, and they were scattered. And so I just kept developing and developing, you know, methods of trying to capture and validate that, yes, there was some kind of activity going on in their home. So I did this for many years. But it wasn't until uh, 2011, I was working here in Ankeny, Iowa. I'm originally I'm from Des Moines area. I grew up uh, in a, on a small farm or acreage just outside the edge of Des Moines. I moved away to help my wife because I was remarried with her mother in Ida Grove, Iowa. She was very ill, and we didn't expect her to last for a long time. Believe it or not, I got a job working for the Ida County Cemetery mowing lawns. For about the first year, I was pretty bored. I'd left the paranormal behind. I hadn't pursued it anymore. In fact, I, I got rid of most of my equipment when we moved. So here I am mowing lawns at the Ida Grove Cemetery. It was a Saturday morning. My nephew, very nice man, his name was Andy. He pulls up one morning and says, hey, he says, I know you're a big-time deer hunter. Uh, I'd like to take you for a little tour through uh, a little park over here. It's called Moorhead Park. And I could show you where all the locals like to go to hunt. And I thought, well, this is a wonderful idea. I'd like to do that. Give me something to do. Here we go through this park. And, and he's telling me that you can sometimes spot deer just, just off the edge of the road, just inside the tree line. And so I'm just straining my eyes trying to spot one of these deer. When suddenly, through the trees, I, I spot this, this old structure. It looked like an old house. And I looked at Andy and I said, does somebody live here in the park? And he says to me, he says, no, that's the old Moorhead house. And I was immediately curious of what the Moorhead house was all about. And so I, I asked him, well, well, what is it? He said, it's a museum. It's called the Stagecoach Inn. And we're driving by now. I can see it in full view. My head was like a hootie owl. It just turned almost completely backwards as we were driving past because I just wanted to take a good look at this place. Well, we finished a tour 
of the park. And I said, say, I said, who do I get in touch with to maybe get a tour of the place? And he told me it was a gentleman by the name of Steve. He was the president of the Historical Society. So I got in contact with Steve and told him who I was. And so most everybody in town knew who my wife's mother was. And he was very inviting. He said, well, sure. He says, Alan, so I can give you a tour of this place. So unbeknownst to him, uh, I had a millimeter in my pocket. Now, as most people know, you know, a millimeter uh, basically just picks up a magnetic disruption, a uh, magnetic field, and uh, numbers will rise and fall, indicating that there may be some kind of a presence. And on this tour, I take the millimeter out and uh, was kind of sneaky about it. I didn't, I didn't want to come forward and say that was a paranormal investigator. I didn't know how he would would react to that. So I'm walking through there, and I'm picking up sporadic readings, you know, which could have been anything. It could have been a radio tower. It could have been his cell phone. It could have been any number of reasons why I was getting these hits on the millimeter. So the tour was over, but there was one thing that really grabbed my attention, and it was in the mud room. This, this was the, or the droger's room. It's the first room you walk into as you enter the old stagecoach inn. Over to the left, as, as you walk into the room, there was this glass case, and in this glass case was a dress and a shoe. And immediately my paranormal thoughts went into hyperdrive, so to speak. And I said, what's the story with the dress? And he says, well, he says, upon restoration of the, of the location, we found this dress hanging in the wall. And we found this shoe as well. I knew in the back of my mind that a lot of times, especially in the 1800s, this place was built in 1856. But in the 1800s, people would put shoes in the walls in order to ward off evil. They felt that it would leave an imprint of, of their own soul or their being in that shoe. And they would put these shoes in what they refer to as weak spots in a location, like uh, a doorway or around a window or a chimney, any place that evil could find its way in. That whole custom changed to putting horseshoe over the front door. So, you know, it's kind of progressed. But anyway, to, to get back to the story, I just chewed on this place for about two months. And one day I kind of built the courage up to, to call Steve and, and explain to him that I was a paranormal investigator. And I would like to ask permission to do an investigation. And he said, well, you know, that's really kind of out of my hands. we got to go before the board and get permission that way. And so I asked the Historical Society members if I could have the opportunity to possibly investigate the old inn. I didn't say I was a paranormal investigator. I, I didn't want to express to them I wanted to find a ghost. I told them that I was a researcher and that I had to research the paranormal, thinking that that would be more, more greatly accepted. And by a show of hands, I was in with the understanding that I had three days. You know, it was three days to investigate, and that was it. If I didn't find anything, then it was done, it was over. So the following weekend, I gathered all my equipment. I had purchased a DVR and one night vision security camera that I was able to hook up to this DVR. And quite honestly, the first two nights were like watching paint dry. Nothing happened. It was a total flop. The third night rolled around, 
and oh, it was going on at least one o'clock in the morning. Standing in the dark, I'm in what they called the community room. I should explain that Stagecoach Inn wore many hats. I guess that's the way to put it. It was a school, it was a church, it was the first hospital, it was obviously, it was an inn. It was a courthouse and the post office, and it served all these at the same time during the 1800s. It was kind of like uh, a convenience store of today. You know, you, you could get anything you needed from there. So I'm in the community room, which also served as a church, and I'm standing there in the dark. I just, I, I shined my flashlight onto a ghost meter. The ghost meter that I used to use, I use no longer. It measures EM in an environment. Uh, the only difference is it has a, a needle that will move from left to right and indicate the frequency or the power of this magnetic field. And it, and it makes a sound. It'll sit there and flash and beep. I actually prefer it over the millimeter because it's, so, it's, it's not as sensitive. And it was just flat. There was nothing. It wasn't showing anything. It wasn't responding to anything. And the words came out of my mouth, the house is essentially flat. And at that moment, something tugged hard on the back of my coat. And as you might guess, it, it startled me. And I spun around. I'm shining the flashlight around. The first thought in my mind is maybe back into something. I, something was close by that snared the bottom of my coat. There was nothing there, absolutely nothing. I had a digital recorder running not far away from me. It was sitting in a chair in that same room. And I asked if there was someone in the room with me. Silence, not a sound. The entire environment took on a whole different vibe. Um, it could have been from fear or it could have been some kind of a shift. I don't really know. But I remember standing there trying to hold my ground trying to be an investigator and investigate, you know, trying to just get rid of the shock and all out of my head and focus on what I'm trying to do. And that was to capture some kind of validation of whether or not there was paranormal activity in this old location. So as I stood there for about, I don't know, five more minutes, I had the urge to leave that room. So I walked through a doorway into an adjacent room called the men's room. Now, this was another room that served back in the 1800s as kind of an armory. And it was also where the men would sleep at night. So I, I walk in there and there's a chair that's sitting in the corner. And I walked to the chair. I sat down in the chair simply because it was in the corner and I wanted to see everything in front of me. I was still pretty startled, a little shook up because something like that had never really happened to me before. And as I sat there, I could start hearing like little ceramic clicks coming from the kitchen area, which is also adjacent to the community room and the men's room. And these, and they started getting louder. It sounded like somebody was preparing a meal and I could hear shuffling moving back and forth. And at one point, these sounds of shuffling sounded like it was coming towards me. And at that moment, I said, you know, this is enough. There's something going on here. I don't know what it is. I'm by myself. And I just shot out of that place. I mean, I, I had to get out. But the thing was, as fast as I was moving, I felt like everything was in slow motion. I felt like my legs were made of lead, that I just couldn't get out the door fast enough. And I don't know if, if, 
if people are the same as I am in their mindset as far as their equipment goes, but we revere this stuff and we try to take care of it. And I'm sitting outside on the back of my old Durango and on the end gate. And I, I thought, I got to go back in there and get this stuff. And I literally went inside and as much, you know, money and, and time and effort I put into collecting all this stuff, I just literally picked it up by the armfuls and threw it in the back of the Durango and left. I didn't care how it fell back there. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. And that was my first experience at the stagecoach. Following day after uh, recovering from the previous night, I decided it was time to go over some of the evidence. Having a, a, a DVR, it took, it took some time. I eventually got to the point where I was standing in the community room. I watched it. I, I just, I, I just was staring a hole through the screen on the monitor. I can see myself standing there, and I know that any minute I'm, I'm going to have that sensation of something pulling on my coat. And I had the audio on. Um, I could hear myself saying the house is essentially flat, and you can see me spin around. There was nothing there. I didn't see anything. Of course, in IR, on the monitor, I could see that I hadn't brushed into anything. I was a little disappointed, obviously, that, that I didn't capture whatever had pulled on my coat. That's when I came to remember I had a digital recorder running. So again, finally came to the point where I asked the question, is there someone in this room with me? And what I heard was, was chilling. It sounded to me and to others who've heard the recording of a little girl or a small child say, uh-huh, yes, that was me. And I gotta tell you, I could just feel the blood just rush from my head. And at that moment, I knew that there was something going on at the Stagecoach Inn. After this short break, Alan will guide us further along the journey he had spending the next six years investigating the Stagecoach Inn. He'll uncover dark secrets hidden within the walls of the inn, connect history with paranormal hotspots in the home, gather more history on the inn and its former inhabitants, and learn that the land has ties to a very sacred Native American landmark. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop, custom printed t-shirts made in Austin with love. Now, there are many reasons why I love this family-owned print shop and why Oh Boy is my go-to shop for all things Night Owl, but let me pick one to rave to you about today. Have you ever ordered custom tees from an event or bought some from your favorite band or company? only to realize that they're thick, scratchy, and look like you're wearing a bag that isn't very flattering on you? Well, that's one thing that won't happen to you when you're with Oh Boy Print Shop. They offer a variety of t-shirts to provide the right choice to meet your needs. I myself prefer comfortable, slightly fitted tees that look and feel awesome enough to wear every day, either by themselves or under a throwover shirt or sweater. Oh Boy Print Shop helped me pick out a tee that fit those needs, and honestly, when I open my closet in the morning, I skip all my other tees and go straight for the Night Owl shirt, because it's the most comfortable and flattering tee in my entire closet now. Oh Boy's aim is to provide you with the options that help you get the product that meets your every need. So, there's no more need for hesitating. Order your first batch of custom printed tees with Oh Boy Print Shop today, and you'll be in great hands. Plus, now you can get $50 off your first order by simply mentioning the Night Owl Podcast. So what are you waiting for? Visit ohboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. 
Before we continue on, I have one fun new announcement and a couple of things I'd like to bring to your attention, listeners. As you all know, this show is a huge passion project of mine, and I literally gave up all my free time to make this all possible. I've been working hard to come up with ways to expand our show's business prospects and provide unique experiences exclusively for listeners. I came up with the idea of creating special cocktail offerings inspired by our show and the various locations that we've been to. The idea was that the drinks would be designed with the spirits in mind and would only be available to those who listen to our show. A portion of every sale made from this Night Owl hidden menu comes directly back to the show. So as of today, you can visit the Clay Pit, ask the bar for the Night Owl podcast hidden spirits menu, and have a drink in honor of the spirits and the show. And please do, because every time you or your friends order off this menu, you're having a drink in support of the show. All four of these specialty cocktails are unique and delicious, but allow me a moment to highlight our signature drink, the Night Owl Martini. It features Weller Special Reserve Bourbon, house-made cold brew, and ancho chili liqueur, just to name a few ingredients. This drink is really cool, with just a touch of spice that's sure to elevate anyone's spirit. The menu also features cocktails for the three spirits there, April, Stedman, and Dowdy. So head on over to the Clay Pits Bar, ask for the Night Owl Podcast Hidden Spirits menu, and raise a glass to you, the spirits, and the show. More details about this Hidden Spirits menu can be found on our website, thenightowlpodcast.com. It was the following month, another meeting at the Historical Society. I presented my evidence. So once they listened for a while, they asked me, Alan, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, quite honestly, I don't know. It's one EVP. It's one reaction. I can't say whether or not there's anything going on here or not. What I would like to do is is continue my research. And again, there was a show of hands. But there was one individual, probably one of the older members of the historical society. She was very outwardly saying, we really want this to go on. We don't need things conjured up all over again. And... The way she said it, you know, a light went off in my head. I didn't want to approach her on a matter that she suggested by saying, we don't need things conjured up out there all over again. But I kept that in my head, thinking that maybe there's something going on out there that nobody's really relating to me. Because during this time, nobody had said anything about any kind of paranormal activity that ever occurred to Stagecoach in. So... She said her piece, and with a show of hands, they said, yes, Alan, you can go ahead and you continue your investigations. But I will add that after that meeting was over, another gentleman approached me. His name was Elmer. Big overalls, general, down-to-earth farmer. He approached me, and he says, Alan, he says, I'm really happy that uh, you're out there doing what you're doing. It, it kind of took me off guard a little bit, and I asked him to explain why. And he told me a little story, and he said that he was out there on one occasion when something very dramatic happened to him. It scared him enough that he would not go back out there alone. Farmers in Iowa are probably the most matter-of-fact people you ever meet. You know, it either is or it isn't. And he he was very excited that somebody was maybe going to go out there and find some answers to some of the things that went on out there over the years. So that really prompted me into trying to get some validation for at least him. I began doing investigations um, almost on a constant basis from that point on, never staying after dark. 
I would just stop. I didn't want to be in that location. And during that time, I didn't realize it, but things were starting to go on around me. Not so much at the end, but in my own personal life. My wife's attitude began to change. We started having financial difficulties. I was having trouble with with alcohol. I hadn't drank in, in years and depression. There was a lot of things going on that, that I didn't really relate to as being a part of the investigating at the end. But I found out later as time went on that it had a lot to do with investigating at the end. There was uh, one occasion that I went to the stagecoach, but uh, it was my birthday. And I thought, you know, I'm going to treat myself to an investigation. I'm going to go out there and see what I can find. It's during the daytime hours, and, and I'm not working today. So I grabbed a little Sony Handycam. Uh, I grabbed a, a ghost meter and my K2. And I've had a lot of activity on the K2 meter out there. I set the K2 meter up on the table in the, the men's room, and I set the ghost meter on uh, what they would call like a day bed in the same room. And I began videotaping. I was addressing my questions to a gentleman by the name of John Moore. Now, John Moore was a farmer began to reside at the old stagecoach inn after it was no longer needed as a stagecoach inn. In the late, you know, 1880s, the railroad had come through and there was really no need for a stagecoach anymore. So the Moorheads moved out, moved into town, and they leased the old inn as, as now a homestead or a farm. John Moore was an interesting character. He belonged to a group of people called the Odd Fellows. There's been a lot of discussion about the Odd Fellows whenever I would bring it up to others. An organization to help the community. There's kind of like the modern day, you know, Lions Club or the Shriners. But there were factions of them that did some pretty bizarre things. They believed in reincarnation. They would have ceremonies that would include, you know, paper mache skeletons. They wore bizarre masks on their faces and just weird, strange rituals. Well, John Moore was a member of this society. And on one occasion, John Moore got out of bed, fed his livestock, did all the things that he would normally do, saddled his horse, rode to the high ridges they described in the newspaper article, and hung himself. And when they found a note in his pocket some hours later, after discovering him in the tree, the note basically said that anything that was, you know, there on the farm, it would be to use to uh, take care of any debts, um, anything remaining that was left over to be given to his, his uh, two brothers. And at the very end of the note, it said, it's all for the best. Now, what makes this interesting about John Moore, he uh, supposedly was suffering from some long-term illness. This was in a newspaper article. And he was also to be convicted for some some unknown crime. What makes that even more interesting is it's, it's all rumor. But supposedly during this time that John Moore was at the old inn, a young girl had fallen down into a well and had died and got killed. Now, whether or not that's what he was going to be indicted on, it remains to be seen. I, I've, I've searched and researched and I wasn't able to find anything out. But this is the reason why I approached John Moore on this particular day, doing some EVPs to see why he killed himself and what the story was. During this time, the ghost meter that was on that little daybed began to flash and go off. 
and I simply just I, I, I honestly felt that I was in contact with John Moore when suddenly in now take in mind I had the handy cam running I caught this on camera suddenly on the other side of the room I was standing at the doorway that leads from the kitchen to the men's room I was kind of more or less in the threshold a chair on the other side of the room literally moved forward the only thing that stopped it from continuing was one of the legs on the chair snagged the throw rug that was laying on the floor it was a very large rug and one of the legs had snagged on it and the, the rug actually curled upward due to the pressure against it. But that was the one thing that stopped the chair from continuing to come any more forward. So I found that to be very, very interesting. And at the same time, kind of disturbing. I did my best to keep the camera from shaking, but uh, that was a pretty profound instance that, that happened there at the end. One of the more interesting things that I think that happened Upstairs was a cubby, and this cubby was used many, many years ago, back you know during the Indian Wars in the 1860s, to hide the children. If there were Indians nearby, the Moorheads would take the children, put them into this cubby hole, and then they would slide a dresser in front of it to conceal it. So if Indians would enter the inn, hopefully the children would be spared. So I thought, I wonder you know, if there's any activity going on in there. And I had this little device. Basically, if you touch it, lights would indicate that there was something there. And it had a long cord that came out of it, and you could wrap it around things. And so I set this device in this cubby hole, and I had a small teddy bear. And I wrapped this cord that came from this device around the teddy bear, and I positioned a camera in the cubby pointing at this teddy bear at the far end. It's not a very large space. It's probably 12 foot long, maybe six and a half foot wide, and four and a half foot tall. It's more or less like a little attic space. And I set the camera in there. I was doing some other video work during the day, just trying to put a little documentary together. And when I was done, I retrieved the camera. I took it home. Again, the following day, I go over uh, the video that I may have captured there. And I was about 10 minutes into the video when the lights began to flash. Something was touching that teddy bear. It was amazing. And it was almost like Morse code, I guess. They were real intermittent flashes. Some stayed on longer. Some were just little quick bleeps. But it was as something was trying to play with this, with this teddy bear. Now what validates that is, I talked to a young lady who told me about her mother. Uh, when they were kids in the old stagecoach inn, it was not in the condition it is today. It was just kind of a ramshackle old building. A lot of the kids from Ida Grove would go out there and they'd play hide and go seek. And this group of kids were there and they were playing their games throughout the day. But it began getting dark. And this young lady, she was going to hide in the cubby hole. So she crawled in there. And she could see the other kids, you know, walking by this cubby, thinking any moment she's going to, you know, get caught. And as she's sitting there, she feels what she thought was a hand that laid on her shoulder. And she screamed, you know, as kids do, you know, they scream out of that excitement, so to speak, And because she thought she was caught. And she ran out of the cubby holes, went down these old dilapidated steps, 
went outside and all of her friends are out there. And she said, okay, who caught me? And they all looked kind of confused. And they said, you know, we've been outside here waiting for you. She says, no, there was somebody upstairs with me and I felt them put their hand on my shoulder. So that validates that there is something inside that cubby hole and whether it's a child or not remains to be seen. You know, there's a lot of stories that, that went on at the end and a lot of very interesting captures. And it got to a point where, you know, I, I realized that anybody, and I mean anybody, could say that something's paranormal. And it got to a point where I needed to get what I discovered validated. So I went back to the historical society and said, you know, obviously I've, I've caught all this information, but I need others to come in and validate what I'm finding. And so they allowed me to do that. A very interesting story. A young team came in, and it was on a night that, quite honestly, nothing much was going on. Part of the arrangement with other teams coming in was I had to be there, not actually in the end, but I had to be on the premises. And I'm sitting in my drawing bill, I'm reading a magazine or something to occupy my time. When a young lady comes out and says, you know, there's not a lot going on in here. Can you maybe show us someplace that we can look to maybe get some activity and, and of course I you know I obliged them went inside and we were in one of the rooms I believe again it was the men's room of course I took the opportunity to uh, document whatever they were going to capture I had my own camera running and one of the gals young lady and I, I wish I could remember her name but she had mentioned you know this is a very interesting location she said my great 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 grandfather was a descendant of Abraham Lincoln and so I'm related in some backhanded way. And at that very moment, she felt terrible pain on her back. And they lifted the back of her shirt, and lo and behold, there was a scratch, just a single scratch that began to show itself on her back, and it was burning. And I thought that to be very interesting. Now to fast forward ahead, I did a little historical type ghost hunt out there several weeks, several months later. And I brought a group of people in, and two of the people were uh, the librarian of the town and her husband. And her husband was a black man. People had walked in, and he was the last one through the door. And immediately, after entering the door, he became violently ill. And he had a rush out, and he literally threw up. I mean, he, it, it, was, it was horrible. He was out in, on, in the yard of, of the location, with the dry heaps. And as soon as it happened, it was it was over. And he apologized, apologized, he said he didn't know what happened. And at that point in time, I thought to myself, I wonder if this place doesn't have something evil enough to be a, a bigot of, of that era of the 1800s. I mean, something obviously attacked this woman that was a descendant of Abraham Lincoln and then turns around and attacks this man. And I thought, I bring these two instances together and I decided to do so in believing that there was something very malevolent out there that, that did not like the whole idea, the whole concept of blacks being free. In all the times that I was out there, as I mentioned before, I, I tried to find groups to come in and validate what I believed was true paranormal activity. And there was a group of individuals that, that came out to the end. And they invited me, actually, to be a part of their investigation. And we were upstairs. We were in one of the women's bedroom areas. 
And we're standing there and, and we're trying to get some kind of interaction with whatever may exist in that particular area. When we all heard at the same time what sounded like a whistling scream. And we were all stunned. The investigators that were there visiting, they were they were just besides themselves. They, we all heard it, and it emanated from the staircase, which we later determined to be some kind of a porthole or a doorway. Fortunately, I had my laptop sitting there, and I had to in recording mode, and we played it back, and we could hear it. The following day, I went back over all the video, and I had uh, four cameras situated throughout the entire inn, and every camera heard that same sound. What made that interesting was I had one of my followers say, well, you know, that might have been like a screech owl outside. And so being an investigator as I am, I, you know, I thought, you know what, you know, maybe you're right. I need to try to figure this out and debunk it. So I took my handy cam the following day and I set it on a tripod and I put it in the exact same spot that each camera was located the night that we captured that audio event. I went outside and I stood at the edge of every tree closest to the inn. And I had a whistle like, like a gym coach uses or, or a referee uses. And I walk outside, cameras running the whole time, and I blew that whistle as loud as I could at each location that I had the camera positioned in each room. When I went over the video and put them side by side with the event that we captured on that night to what I tried to recreate, there was a very obvious difference. For one, it didn't have that rich reverb echoing that would emanate from inside of a structure. You could tell the sound came from outside. It was distant, it was far off. This sound came from the inside of, of the inn, and it was the most prominent at the staircase. It was loud. Quite honestly, it sounded like a banshee. From where we were located upstairs, it sounded more of a, like a, a loud whistle. But when you hear the audio, and I, I hope to present that to you, and you can see it in both its formats, you can tell it's a scream, and it's emanating from that staircase, which, again, we went on to determine it was some kind of a portal. Now, what do I think is going on out there? There's a burial tree out there, not but 40 feet from the front door. It's a Sioux burial tree. The Sioux Indians used to bury their dead on scaffolds or trees. And we know this because the, the Moorheads, Martha and her daughter Anna, would have little picnics at this big oak tree. And on the ground, they would find beads, hundreds of beads. What would happen was, um, over the years, this is many, 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 many years before the end existed, when they buried their dead on the limbs of these big oak trees, the bodies would decay, obviously. Uh, the bones would fall to the ground. You know, animals would, would, you know, take them away, but the beads would remain. So I believe that being sacred ground like it is, and this house being built on that sacred ground, that somehow there's a keeper or a protector there that tries to keep everything away. And if you live there in life, I honestly truly believe that when you're death, you're going to be bound there. And, and that's the reason why John Moore is possibly still there. That's the reason why the children that I've caught on tape over audio recordings, one for instance saying, someone save us, 
I believe that is probably the catalyst for the activity of this incredibly active location. I know there was one winter that was very harsh when the uh, travelers came through and some people were suffering from frostbite. One person actually his foot was frozen and there was no anesthesia back then. People would just lay on top of this individual, whoever was suffering from this frostbite, and hold him down while somebody took a saw and cut his foot off. Now all those emotions, all of that is in some way indelibly imprinted into that building. And you must also understand that every piece of furniture that is now in this museum has been donated by somebody. And every piece of that furniture is from the era of the stagecoach when it existed. And every piece of that furniture somebody revered. People didn't have a lot of money back in the 1800s. So when they bought something and when they used it, it was a means of their survival. And so their own self is in each of those items. So any number of those items could be a reason for the activity in this location. It, it's like a layer cake, or what I like to refer to as a Petri dish. It just constantly grows. There's always something going on there. It could be John Moore. It could be the Native American aspect. It could be residual. It could be, you know, very much intelligent, which I do believe there is a lot of intelligence out there. I investigated Stagecoach Inn from 2011 to 2017. So in nearly seven years. And in that time, it profoundly changed my life. This place took something away from me. It took a part of my own being. And I believe it's always gonna be there. I put so much time and energy and emotion into those investigations that I believe that my own identity, a piece of me, is indelibly now printed into that stagecoach in. And I'll never be able to get away from it. For the ordinary average person to walk in there and do a tour and learn the history of the 1800s, learn the history of the Moorheads, everything's fine. But if you go in there and poke that proverbial paranormal stick into that very dark place, it's gonna give you everything you're gonna ask for. Somebody came to me once and said, you know, I don't believe in this stuff. I, I, I'm a complete skeptic, I don't believe in it. And I've never pressured anybody in, in forcing them to believe that this phenomenon exists. And quite honestly, I look them square in the eye and I say, God bless you. Because once you are sucked into this world, your life changes. And I am happy for that person that does not believe in the paranormal because he's safe there. That individual is completely safe. And I believe once you dive into that pool, you're engulfed in it and you'll never separate yourself from it. No matter how hard you try, that moment, that instant in time that something makes contact with you or you receive that one fantastic EVP, suddenly there's this neon light that shines above your head that says, hey, you can mess with this guy. It's not a fun place to be. Alan took all that he experienced during his time investigating the inn and wrote a book entitled Ghosts and Legends of the Stagecoach Inn. I recently read it over a weekend camping trip and really appreciated how honest Alan was in his retelling of his story. 
There's so much more in the book that he wasn't able to tell here in this campfire episode, so I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, I'm going to say at least 85% of what's in the book was documented, and I wanted to write it to kind of be a cleansing, so to speak, to put it down on paper and hopefully put it behind me. But in all honesty, every time I look at an old piece of furniture or a wooden peg or a square nail or anything that is of the era of the 1800s, immediately I'm, I'm taken back. I can visualize myself standing inside the stagecoach inn. For those who would like to get the book, you can go to darkriverparanormal.com and you can order it there. You can also order it on Amazon. Uh, it can be downloaded to Kindle. If you want a signed copy of the book, you'll have to go to darkriverparanormal.com. I have books available, and I can sign and personalize the book and then send it out to you. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversations I had over the phone with Alan while documenting this incredible story. Many of the values and theories that Alan expressed about being a paranormal investigator resonated with me as well. I admired the amount of time he spent researching and validating what he had experienced. His observations on the difference between ghost hunting and paranormal investigating, and his desire to help others struggling with something they'd experienced that they just could not explain. I realized that these are all things that my team and I value as well. And with the show, we hope to keep helping others along the way, all the while inching closer and closer to the truth, carefully, case by case. Thanks for listening to our fifth campfire episode of the Night Owl podcast. Alan has offered to share the evidence and photographs he captured while investigating the Stagecoach Inn, and I'll be sure to share those on a blog linked to this episode on our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, so keep an eye out for that. Our investigation into Pioneer Farms will continue in episode 19, which releases on May 27th. In it, clairvoyant friend Sarah joins us for a walk around the entire property to see what she can uncover about the unexplained happenings at this site. Be sure to join us as we tackle our largest investigation to date. Sarah struggles with whether or not she can handle such a location, and I begin my treacherous dive into historical research for this case. I'd like to thank my team, Sarah, Alexis, and Franklin, for going on these crazy adventures with me, Nicholas Fair and Petey Wilder for your talented musical contributions to the show, Jennifer for keeping us organized and on schedule, as well as assistant editing, my dad, Sam, for his historical research assistance, Alex for his help assistant editing, and my very supportive wife, Tao, for sticking with me all these late nights and long hours, and for taking amazing photographs on every case. And last but not least, David Dalton of Driftworks Sound for mastering every single episode on the tight turnarounds I give him. Please support their works by visiting our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, and clicking on the About tab. There you can find links to all their individual works and websites. And to help keep this show going, and my team and I fed and caffeinated, please support us for as little as a dollar a month on our Patreon page. This contribution not only helps me keep this show alive, you gain access to a ton of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. So please visit patreon.com backslash thenightowlpodcast and become a Night Owl patron today. And a special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oh Boy Print Shop. If you have the need for custom t-shirt printing, you can feel at ease in the hands of Oh Boy Print Shop. Be sure to mention the Night Owl Podcast to get $50 off your first order. And don't forget to stop by the Clay Pit in Austin, Texas and ask for the Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu. Grab a special haunted cocktail and support the show. Thank you all and stay restless out there.
This podcast was mastered by David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. If you're ready to up the production quality of your podcasts or music, go to driftworksound.com. That's D-R-I-F-T, worksound.com. And get your project mixed, mastered, or produced using well-established methods and unconventional techniques. That's driftworksound.com. And remember, your first master is completely free.